Hey, welcome to another episode of Breaking into Cybersecurity, where we interview individuals that have broken into the field, usually within the past five years. But today we have a special edition. We have Mr. Omkar, and I'm not even going to try with his last name because uh, I don't want to butcher it. But um, he's going to share some advice from his experience Um to help shape the future generation. So, so sometimes we bring on uh, leaders, uh, influential individuals within the community to kind of share their insights and have a conversation with them about how we can improve the talent pipeline, how we can uh, attract and retain talent and um, all sorts of those interesting conversations. So Omkar, you wanna give a little introduction about yourself? Absolutely, so thank you so much, Chris. So I, first came into security about 17 years ago. Um, I've been in security for the majority of my career. Um, in addition to being a security person, I consider myself to be a software engineer that adopted security. And we can talk a little bit more about that and the pivots that I took in my career along the way and some of those decisions that I'm sure a lot of our listeners um, have encountered themselves. And uh, in addition to that, as you say, it's our accountability as leaders in the industry to really build that bench of the next generation. So I'm really excited about a lot of the work that my colleagues and I have been doing in that arena. Um, I'm pretty involved with a lot of the cybersecurity programs at NYU, um, as well as uh, my wife and I set up a uh, scholarship earlier this year uh, for individuals entering cyber engineering. Uh, especially those that may not be as well represented in the industry today. Wow. Uh, talk, talk about uh, an exciting career. So let's kind of go back and give the audience um, how you got started in cyber uh, or IT in general and then pivoted to cyber kind of, as you mentioned, you have that uh, software engineering background. Sure. So computers had always interested me. They'd really fascinated me from a very young age. Um, and I was the kind of kid who was extremely comfortable with sitting down at a computer, cracking open a manual, and writing code. My first programming language when I was about seven was probably um, Logo. And I remember dutifully going through this code and writing it out and just being fascinated by the graphic that appeared uh, when I ran the program. And ever since then, I was hooked. Um, and as I proceeded through my education and through learning more about computers, I became more adept at data structures and algorithms and learning different languages, C and Pascal and Assembler and all those things. And um, then, admittedly, um, I got a bit distracted while I was in high school and maybe didn't uh, pay enough attention in my <laughs> latter years. <laughs> and as a result of that, um, I took what I affectionately called a, a victory lap. Um, so, uh, a gap year. <laughs> not quite a gap year. Like gap year to me connotates like backpacking through Europe. For me, it was more of a working in a factory during the day kind of situation while doing some night school in the evenings. Um, and I realized two things. One, I didn't want to work in a factory for the rest of my life. It was, I did not enjoy the work. It was not work that I found particularly motivating. And it was physically exhausting. 
Um, mm -hmm. And the second thing that I realized was that um, I, I really started to fall in love with computers again. And that, that really helped to hone focus. So I saw an ad in the newspaper, as, as we did in those days, right? I saw an <laughs> advert for a job in a newspaper. And uh, I applied. And that was my first career in IT, so to speak, in, uh, at IBM, working on the help desk for ThinkPad tech support. Um, so for all of you that are a little nervous about entering IT and wondering what appropriate careers might be, find something that you can do and apply yourself and you'll be fine. Uh, following that, I really got into Linux, uh, Linux kernel development in fact, and I just found that intimacy between the lowest levels of software and the hardware of the computer itself was just fascinating to me. And then a friend of mine, um, Mike, a friend, a coworker at IBM, saw this really interesting job posting. And the job posting was called Ethical Hacker and Penetration Tester, something that we call a red teamer today. And I, uh, like many turns in my career, I thought, oh, cool. <laughs> um, and I, I spoke a little bit about pivots. Based on the requirements and the way the job was described, I thought, you know, I really know how operating systems work. This job is essentially making operating systems not work in the way they were designed. Maybe I can apply the stuff that I know now to that next role. And uh, that's exactly what I did. From there, uh, I moved into leadership positions within the team, uh, eventually moving up to security architecture. Uh, I did some work with, uh, while still at IBM, building IBM's first cloud as the chief security architect. I worked on a number of standards for those that curse ISO 27000 under their breath. I worked on one of those revisions. Um, and I genuinely had a great time. And then I decided to make a bit of a career change and move from IBM into TD Bank, where I was the chief security architect. And again, the transferable skill that I took with me is I knew security, but I knew nothing about financial sector. Like, I knew nothing about banks. I didn't know how banks made money. Um, but I quickly learned, and you know, by the end of it, one of the most beneficial courses that I've taken in the last 15 years was a course at TD called uh, Financial Management for Non-Financial Managers. And I got to read, I got to understand how to read a balance sheet and an income statement and all the bits of finance that make banks work. And that helped me to grow. It helped me to take the trade that I was very familiar with and expand my horizons. The next role I had was as the CTO of security at Deutsche Bank. Um, and that was, I'd started to pivot to more of a security governance kind of role where it was less about building things and more about ensuring security was properly being applied to things that were being built. I then had an opportunity to be the uh, head of product management and engineering for cybersecurity at Credit Suisse. And I was also the uh, technology executive for security for the Americas. And what that meant 
is, again, with the background of things that I did know, I really got steeped into regulatory and compliance work. And I got to meet with the SEC and NYDFS and all the alphabet soup of um, our favorite regulators here in the States. And I got to understand, you know, how you frame things to a regulator, what the things are that they want to see, how to apply risk-based controls. And that really helped me to hone my craft as a security professional rather than purely thinking about things in terms of technology. After that, um, I'll, I'll take a sidestep. I'll step to the side, a bit of a tangent, and, and then I'll come back to the, the rest of the career story. But I'm a firm believer that what motivates you in terms of your career is one of three things, but they're, they're vectors, right? Meaning there's a balance between them. It's not an absolute one or the other. Um, and those three things are title, so, or, or level, right? People want to achieve a certain level in terms of seniority. People want to be a CISO. People want to be a CTO, whatever it is. And that can be quite motivating. The second is money. You know, most of us don't do this for free. And financially, finances can be very motivating, especially uh, when you're starting out. And the last, the last is mission. And the, what exemplifies mission for me is people that do a lot of volunteer work or that dedicate their lives to a particular cause from which they get no compensation or recognition. It's just the idea of doing good, good stuff. And for me, where I was in the beginning of my career was 100% compensation. Like, I was all about that money. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out enough ways to accelerate my income. And gradually, like if my boss is listening to this, I could always do with more money. But <laughs> gradually, that became less important. And I started getting a lot more motivated, especially as I went through financial sector, about the idea of being a CISO or a deputy CISO. And I thought to myself, you know, that's, that's the place I want to be. Eventually, I want to be a financial sector security leader that I equated to being a CISO. And then around the time that I was kind of wrapping things up at Credit Suisse, I had this revelation. For a lot of the time when I was in financial sector, while I was deeply steeped in technology, and I will continue to be so <laughs> to the end of my days, I was really installing software that other people had built, right? I was building teams that were installing commercial off-the-shelf software, maybe a bit of what I call glue code to stick it all together, but essentially it was stuff that other people made. And I realized, mission, right? I realized I love building software. Like that's the thing that gets me going. So when an opportunity came up at JPMC, J.P. Morgan Chase, to run the data protection engineering team, which started off with the mission that, you know, the current state of data protection, whether it's DLP or, you know, DRM or whatever it is, is just terrible, and we need to do better, and there's nothing good on the market. And when I was given this canvas with a significant budget, significant headcount, and said, you know, run for the hills, that ignited that passion again. And I realized, you know, I could get to the point that I'm never CISO, and I'm going to be super happy doing what I'm doing. So I'd also impart that as advice, right? 
there's this implied career trajectory that you go from A to B, B to C, and then you end up at CISO. And you know, once you're at CISO, the, the heavens open up and, and life is grand. You really need to figure out what motivates you. And there are so many things that you can do in security. I've had people that have been on my team that have joined from a legal background, like they, they were trained lawyers. I've had people that have started off like I did in software engineering. I've had people that have liberal arts degrees that you know needed to find a job, so they started off as a project manager and then eventually moved into security. And I think where we are in terms of security is such a rich environment nowadays. Um, so be thoughtful about where you set your targets. Be malleable in terms of what's presented in front of you because you know, while I strongly advocate for having a long-term career roadmap, I have never followed my long-term career roadmap, but at each inflection point, I've been able to measure what the path was versus what the opportunity is that I have in hand, and I could make an educated decision about whether that felt good. The other litmus test that I usually apply when I think about another role, and this was great advice given to me by a former mentor and manager of mine by the name of Richard McDonald, uh, who I worked for at IBM. And Richard told me, don't take a role for that role. Think about what that role plus one is. So you get into a new job, and one of the validation criteria you should use is, okay, I get this job, three, four years pass, what do I do after that? Like, what's my, what's my career progression after that? It doesn't mean that you have to, it doesn't mean that success is measured by whether you take that next step into job plus one, but it at least allows you to be a bit more thoughtful about whether the decision you're making is impulsive or not. So that brings us to today. So as I mentioned, I do a lot of work with NYU. I'm a senior fellow there. I help out with their Cyber Fellows program. I help out with the Masters in uh, Risk in Cybersecurity. Um, my wife and I, as I mentioned, set up a scholarship uh, earlier this year for um, underrepresented folks entering cybersecurity engineering, as that's a passion of mine. And in my day job, I work at Google. I'm a director of engineering in charge of the systems that allow us at Google to serve regulated workloads on GCP, uh, like FedRAMP, like Department of Defense IL-456, et cetera, like some of the European regulations. And as a fellow that's really motivated most, well, as a fellow that's motivated most specifically by two things in technology, which is doing things at scale and doing things that haven't been done before, this is my sweet spot. Um, it's a great place to be. Does that help answer your question, Chris? Uh, yes, I mean, there's a couple of po points I wanted to, to pull out. First, mm -hmm. like, as you grew in your career, um, I love the aspect of like those three different areas. Um, that the financial motivation, um, the reputational motivation, which would be like the title, and then the passion motivation. Um, I I personally feel like I'm I'm in the point of my career where I'm both the reputational and the 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 
the passion because I do things like this. Um, I do other work and I, I want to feel like I'm giving back to the community and helping those that are that are coming behind us. Um, so I, I love that you broke it down into those three pillars. Um, the other thing that I noticed is as you start out, you, you tend to be more technical. And as you grow, you focus less on the technical and more on the relationship and the results of achieving that work. Um, for you, you're always in the code, but you might not be in the code as much as you used to be. Um, would that be a right assumption? Absolutely. Um, I think there's as, well, the first thing is, and something I love about being at Google and that I loved when I was at IBM previously, was at tech companies, you often have dual career paths, meaning you could be, and we have several examples of this at Google right now, you could be all the way up to you know, a senior vice president with maybe one or two direct reports, but be essentially an individual contributor that is the technical authority on X, right? And there's no shortage of those kind of folks at Google. And if that's something that interests you and that you're passionate about, I mean, by all means. For me, I found about a third of the way through my career that while I absolutely adore technology and you know, I still write code for myself, I, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to push any code to production here, probably a wise decision. <laughs> um, but I am also equally motivated leading and supporting great teams and seeing an individual grow to their full potential, seeing them go through these kind of iterations where they're pressure testing different career paths and really to help facilitate their greatness um, is extremely rewarding to me. That doesn't come without its downsides, right? Um, the great thing about computers is they're quite deterministic, and you know exactly how they'll react. People, I mean, we're we're not maybe if you know how the code's going to run, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but people are even less predictable, and um, so so yeah. In my day to day, while it's not that I I drop into our code repo, Google three, and and start compiling stuff. Um, Certainly the fundamental principles of computer science have helped me throughout my career. And I'm not sitting down doing like sigma notation and figuring out the most efficient algorithm to go and store and retrieve data. But understanding those core tenets and being able to reason and rationalize with your team as to whether those are the right decisions and trade-offs and potentially what failure modes could be introduced, or even incorporating that corpus of information along with my understanding of regulation and security requirements. Um, I often tell people that, you know, there were no wrong turns in my career. Everything I've done, even if I absolutely disliked it and vowed to never do it again, have led me <laughs> to where I am now. Like the fact yeah. that when I was at IBM that I've that I've done audits, like not just like checklist stuff, but proper audits, or the fact that I've had to sit down with the SEC and uh, go through consent orders and MRAs and MRIAs, like all of that allows me to be a better leader 
in what I do today. One of the things you mentioned in, in growing your teams is uh, allowing them to pressure test different careers. What, what's what, what did you do in regards to your own self-discovery um, as you were looking for a career path, as you were looking at pivots? How did you how did you make those decisions yourself? Like, what did you look into to uh, to make that decision? Great question. So. I think the first thing, I'll, I'll address that question from two vantage points. As leaders, and uh, Google sponsored a, a study on high-performing teams a few years ago called, uh, and the results of which are published in a report called the Oxygen Report. And I strongly encourage people to take a look at that if you're a leader of any type in your organization. It's uh, tremendously insightful. But the in a lot of ways, as non-deterministic as people are, computer people are a lot like distributed computer systems in the sense that if you're running a large scale, um, if you're running a large scale service like at a bank or at Google or at Amazon, etc., um, one of the core tenets of systems resiliency is a quality that we refer to as failing safely, right? So in the event that you have failure in any one of your dependent systems, it's not a catastrophic failure for the entire service, you fail gracefully or you degrade mm -hmm. gracefully. And I think people's careers benefit from that in the same sense. So as a leader, when you're taking a look at what your team wants to do and how to encourage them to take that next step, whatever the next step might be, there's two considerations. One. Are you coaching for performance, meaning are you getting them ready for the next thing? Or two, are you coaching them for remedial reasons? Like are they not quite making it? Are they not quite putting in what they need to in order to perform at the level? If you're coaching for remediation, the kind of coaching you do looks a lot different, right? It looks more like verging almost on micromanagement, you know, Here's how you get from one to two, check in. Here's how you get from two to three, check in. If you're coaching for growth, you as a leader should be what they call the lazy coach, right? You step back and you say, okay, you're at one, I, needed to get, I need you to get to five. And then, to use a football analogy, you're the blocker. You take care of all the obstacles so that individual can succeed. And giving them also a safe, a safe place for if they do make the wrong decision along the way, that they can fail safely and they can learn from that because I'm sure all of us would agree some of the most beneficial lessons that you've learned are probably in scenarios where you made a mistake, you learned the reason <laughs> and you, you recovered from it because you were given an opportunity to recover. And an opportunity to recover doesn't mean that you're shielded from accountability, but rather that it's not detrimental to your career. Like if you make a wrong decision, you're not gonna get fired for it or you're not gonna be demoted for it or something of that nature. And that concept of psychological safety is super important. So to get back to how I facilitated that to, for myself, firstly, the times that I had um, most engagement with my career progression is when my leaders, the people that I reported into, 
facilitated that safe space for execution. They allowed me to fail safely without it tarnishing my reputation or career. I also kind of mentally modeled what I referred to as pivots earlier, right? So whatever the next job looked like, I am not going to another job that is exactly the same as the job I'm in right now. If I'm not stretching, if I'm not growing, there's really no point in me going there. It's just lather, rinse, repeat, and it's not interesting mm -hmm. to me. But I also don't want too much of a stretch, right? Like, it would be feasible for me to go from the role I'm in now to another kind of software engineering role outside of security, or I could go to another role within security, or I could do something in perhaps risk, maybe compliance. Like, all of these are kind of one degree of separation pivots. Yeah. I would not feel comfortable to go be the CFO somewhere, assuming somebody was, <laughs> was uh, crazy enough to allow me to, uh, that opportunity, because I just don't have enough of the skills, in spite of being able to read a balance sheet and an income statement and cash flow, to be able mm -hmm. to succeed as that. That would be too much of a stretch. So when I think about individuals that are entering security now, in fact, a lot of the advice that I give for the students in NYU that are looking to break in, I start off by telling them, like, what, what is it that you're good at now? What is it you're doing now? Are you a lawyer? Are you an accountant? Are you a software engineer? Are you a student just starting off? And whatever the case is, attune your first security role. Attune the role that you are going to do first, but not last, in security with whatever field you're coming from. If you're a software engineer, maybe you become the security champion for your team. So you help them to document safe coding practices, you do security-based peer reviews, you implement static analysis, whatever the case is. If you're a lawyer, maybe you start orienting to more of a privacy kind of lean or perhaps a regulatory kind of lean where you can apply your legal expertise and technical knowledge against a new subject matter. Maybe if you're a project manager, you start picking up projects that are more security-oriented, or you start documenting more than just project execution risk. You, are, you start considering how to manage cybersecurity risk. risk as well. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's, that's how I thought about my career. The advice that I'd give leaders that are looking to give that headspace to their staff, as well as what I would recommend to listeners that are thinking about how to get their first break in cyber. Well, so so much there I want to unpack, but there's one more topic that I wanted to challenge. Um, sure. As you as you've risen in the ranks, um, what are you doing to um, remove some of the blockers that that might have been in the way from when you started in regards to say um, looking at job descriptions, looking at requirements, uh, and kind of balancing between um, formal education, certifications, and hands-on experience for those looking to break into the field and providing that safe space for them to enter without a uh, million requirements. So firstly, to all the recruiters and hiring managers out there, entry level means entry level. Come on, people. Like, if I see another... <laughs> entry-level position with like five to ten years of experience in anything other than breathing like <laughs> you're thinking about it wrong right <laughs> um, the second is I kind of buried the lead on this but I never finished my undergrad 
So I, I'm deeply passionate about those that may not have formal education, but have learned through their own passion about the subject. And as, as leaders within organizations and people that are ultimately accountable for the onboarding of new talent, I'd encourage you to think about it that way. Like think deeply about what are the skills for this job and balance the people that you're interviewing with the skills for the job. And I can't say this enough, stop biasing for experience. And as counterintuitive as that sounds, if we don't start biasing for what is the skill required for this job, and does this person have that skill, and if we just simply continue hiring the most experienced person, it's this vicious cycle where the entire organization continues with the same thinking, the same tenants, the same composition, the same diversity. The beauty, the benefit of having a very diverse slate of experience is you need to encourage people to continue to think differently. If we just bring in a bunch of folks that look different and conform them to the same way of doing everything, you're not getting the benefit, right? So when it comes to my team, I strongly encourage them to look for what skills are required for the job, to bring in folks of all kinds of backgrounds, and then it's our accountability as leaders to balance what we bring into the team, what we've hired into the team, how we deal with attrition and growth against the mission that we're assigned. That's the, that's the true benefits of being a manager rather than just trying to uniformly conform everyone to be the same thing. So kind of be, be the change that, that you ended up being, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Does that answer your question, Chris? A absolutely. And wow, look at this. We've already went through our half hour and more. Um, so we need to do this again, I, man. I, I know we, we have to have a second edition. Um, so as the end of this first edition, how would you summarize um, all that you mentioned into one piece of sage advice for someone that looks up to you as a mentor for breaking into the field um, and allowing them to have this a same journey? Sure. Um, firstly, for any of you listeners out there, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm connected. If you're not connected to me, you're connected to Chris. Reach out anytime. I always, I love to, prof I love to provide advice. Uh, be warned, you get what you pay for. So it may not be the perfect <laughs> advice. Um, but jokes aside, the one, the one thing that I'd say is chart the course that's right for you. It's taken me a long time to figure out what I like job-wise. I made a lot of wrong turns along the way, but I got to try out things and learn from that experience. And be true to yourself. Like, Don't assume career progression means go from X to Y, Y to Z, become non-technical, get a team of 500 people, and become a CISO. That works for a lot of people. A lot of people get super excited about that. But be introspective as to what you want to do, and then whatever cyber career path aligns best with those passions, I'd strongly encourage you to go for that. Hopefully that was succinct enough, Chris. I, I think it was, and we definitely have to have a second edition. Um, so for all of you on LinkedIn, um, ensure that you, you, you follow Umkar and myself, as well as the Breaking Into Cybersecurity page. For those of you on YouTube, uh, don't forget to subscribe and hit that notification button for 
uh, next time we come live. And for those of you on podcast, please subscribe on your, your favorite podcast mediums, share with friends and family, and that way we can have a diverse cybersecurity community that comes at this problem from different approaches because we need those different approaches to be able to solve these complex problems. Um, thank you very much, and everyone have a great day.